Hello, and welcome to Moms Going Boldly, a podcast about the new Star Trek Discovery TV series by two moms who write about autism and who happen to also be Star Trek fans. Together, we talk about the new series, how it relates to previous versions of Star Trek, and any autism issues that we happen to see along the way. I am your host, Elizabeth, and with me is my co-host, Vicki. Hey, this is Vicki. Together, we are Moms Going Boldly. Today on Moms Going Boldly, we discuss the first full episode of the series, Context is for Kings, or Does Might Make Right? This one was called Context is for Kings, and we see our heroine... Michael Burnham on a prison transport that is somehow attacked by microscopic energy feeding creatures. The pilot of the transport goes out to clean the creatures off the hull before they eat all the energy. And then the pilot is blown off into space. It said, um, what do they call it? The tether? Pilot lost the tether. Or something. So yeah. So, um, whether that was on purpose. Once you get farther into the episode, do you think maybe that was on purpose? Well, but I, I do. That was, yeah. But what happened to the pilot? Did we ever hear in the episode if the pilot was rescued as the Discovery came and pulled in the prison shuttlecraft? It didn't look like she was going to be because they showed her flying I mean, away. Couldn't they? So, no, I heard nothing about that afterwards. I didn't either. And I thought that was kind of a misstep to at least explain what happened to the pilot. Unless we're just supposed to assume that she's gone. Or unless it wasn't a misstep because, as we'll discuss as we go further on here, Captain Lorca is a bit of an enigma. For him to be the calming influence in her life or went out the window. (laughs) The prison transport's rescued by Discovery and she gets placed in with the rest of the prisoners, the three other prisoners in with the rest of the crew, and then it becomes very obvious that this was all contrived so that Captain Lorca could bring Michael Burnham on into his crew as a sort of scientific advisor and analyzer. Then we start seeing some mysterious behavior. We start being introduced to members of the Discovery crew. What did you think of the crew? Michael, who's from The Walking Dead, so that's what I'm still seeing. Oh, okay. I've never seen The Walking Dead, so I don't have that previous experience with that actor. Still seeing her, so and me being behind on The Walking Dead can now assume that she died. And then we have the kid from Adventures in Babysitting who looks just like the kid from Adventures in Babysitting. Who's the kid from Adventures <laughs> in Babysitting? Lieutenant Stamets. Uh, is that a, is that the guy, the head scientist from Adventures in Babysitting? So we've got some carryover with these characters for their previous acting roles. That sometimes it does influence. Um, my son realized, you know, halfway through this episode that Captain Lorca was the former, you know, Malfoy from Harry Potter. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That's right. One really interesting thing regarding the crew is when uh, Michael Burnham is assigned to quarters and meets her roommate for the first time. 
right out of the gate, my son said, she's autistic. She's autistic. Is she autistic? That's what I thought, too. But apparently, well, maybe maybe she is. They don't say that. But she said she had special needs. But I guess her special needs were the allergies. She put, she she seemed to him like a, someone who was on the spectrum. He, like, pegged that right off out of the gate. And so I thought, you know what? Whether she is or not, that's cool because he can relate. Um. So I kind of I kind of enjoyed that, and so I hope that she continues her, you know, pseudo autistic characteristics and continues to make my son, you know, have someone on the show that he can relate to in a direct way. I think I think he's absolutely right. I like her because I like the idea of the counterpoint that she displays to Michael Burnham, who is stoic and mm. apparently centered and very intellectual whereas the roommate is processes verbally out loud and her feelings are all right there and so she's a great you know foil for you know the michael burnham character so there's some odd things going on on the ship i really enjoyed this uh black alert that they announced and then sort of water appeared in midair floating and then disappeared oh i and i did notice coming on the ship um, one of the prisoners saying, did you ever see a black com badge? That was really cool. At a black com badge. Now, all I could think of, the farther we got into the episode, and again, I might be out in my field, is I'm wondering if this black alert, the black badges, is is of Section 31. That is a brilliant question. I didn't go there at all, but that is a great question to think about. You're right. DS, in DS9, that was more of a CIA kind of thing, but we don't know. Yeah, I, I like that question. I think that is definitely something to be watching for, and that makes a lot of sense because the Federation would be willing to pull out this nefarious part of itself as a reaction to this war with the Klingons. That makes a lot of sense. That's very cool. All I know is I saw the black badge, and I was thinking... When I can find that on Amazon, I'm so buying that. Because <laughs> that was really, I thought it was really cool looking. So, yeah, I'm sure that'll come soon. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It will. So then she's, uh, Michael Burnham is pulled into this scientific um, research that's going on that we discover later has to do with space spores. What it seemed like that. That somehow enabled them to connect to different places and distant parts of the galaxy instantaneously through energetic connections between the spores that are throughout the universe. That's how it seemed to come across to me. What did, what did you think? That's what I thought. Okay. But then I, then I was wondering because the captain has a triple. Yes. Which I didn't notice until the second time I watched it because I could hear the noises. Can these spores move them through time as well? That's a good question. I don't know. And I thought about that when we get to the end of the episode. That's where I really started. Okay. So um, she's trying to figure out what's going on. But here's the thing. Because now that you made the mention about, um, about Section 31, was she actually in the science area that was restricted by the security officer with the black badge? Or is that a separate area? You're, I don't know if that was a separate area. Because we see her I walking. You, that's right. I bet you. No, I bet you that's where she went. That's where I would go if you were, you know, you see a garden in front of a door, that's thing out of them. But I bet you that's where she went. But 
the sciency parts of that particular lab are actually already restricted by breath print only, so why would they need a security guard outside it as well? I'm not sure that the space that was being guarded by the security guard with the black badge is the same space that she went into. I could be barking up the wrong tree here. Well, now that you're saying that because he's at the end of the episode again, he's hiding something, so that's probably where he's hiding it. Maybe. Maybe that's it. Anyway, I think that's interesting to look for. Let's see if that lab is where the security guard with the black badge was or whether it's Captain Lorca's strange menagerie area or if it's something different altogether. Mysteries and mysteries. So she gets involved in this science project and learns through her own intellect as well as some sneaking around that this has to do with growth of spores and then their sister ship doing identical experiments is damaged there's distress call and then everyone on that ship dies now the part in the formula that she found was an error yes well i'm it's making it look like that had something to do with it that's a good point i think you're correct they the conversation made it appear as though it was the other ship's eagerness to increase their output of whatever their experiment was but i think your point of that error in the formula may be the right place to go here and the other piece might have been a red herring or maybe they go together so she they the, the ship is damaged the crew is killed and they go on it on an away mission to collect the data that the crew had gathered before they were killed and we get to see some really weird stuff there it's very dark with only flashlights and creaky noises and bodies and the bodies seem strangely warped is that how you would describe it? Yeah. And then they discover evidence of Klingons, that they came aboard the ship, but then the Klingons were killed by some mysterious force, which begs the question, did the Klingons get any information about the experiment? Up to, right. And we don't, we don't know. We don't know, and it's entirely possible they did. Then some strange creature attacks them, some cross between a bear and a dinosaur and a lizard or something. What did you, what, what did you think of that? Uh, something with the spores yes definitely but what could have morphed i mean is it is it a crew member that got morphed by the spores is it an animal that when they were visiting one of the faraway places came back with them that's what i'm thinking yeah you think it's that one yeah an animal interesting anyway so the animal chases them they are under under the gun and you know in, in danger as they try to retrieve the uh information they're looking for and then michael burnham Goes is there a one-woman wrecking crew distracting the animal so that the others can escape and then they rescue her later. And I thought it was very interesting about how she was reciting f- lines from Alice in Wonderland. What did you think of that? I was wondering if she just uses that as a mechanism to calm herself down. Like, my son will repeat random stories out loud over and over when he needs to calm down. So, so I'm wondering if that's what she uses. That's a great question. So either like a, like a verbal stim? That's what, that's what it looked like to me. Of course, I see that with my son, so I could be just... I think it's absolutely applicable because my son will do the same thing, do a verbal stim that way in order to help him calm down. Yeah, it makes all the sense in the world to me. And so she found a passage from a book that seemed appropriate to her circumstances right, and right. used it. I think that's a brilliant analysis. Thought Only because, you know... I live it, <laughs> which of course you do too. She draws the animal off 
and saves everybody on the away team, and then they get back on the ship. And um, she had some very inter- interesting interactions with Saru. And I read somewhere that someone was saying that Saru was Discovery's Spock, but I'm not sure I agree with that. No, I don't. I, I read that too. I don't. But And I think he's torn. He's very torn. Like or love for her. And, you know, Starfleet by the book. And also his own innate characteristics right. that he brings it to the table as a member of his species, which... He wants to use those characteristics in support of Starfleet, and they are warning him against her. Right, and he also did say that Captain um, doesn't fear things that most people would fear, so I'm, I'm sure he was terrified. Now we have two people. Yes. Oh, yes, good point. So, so Saru is actually worried both about his captain and this new, his right. new crew member. They, he wanted her to leave. What would happen if they, she stayed and the captain and her having the same mindset, really. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. So uh, we see Captain Lorca. First we see him in what looks like his ready room, which all things considered is pretty austere, except for the Tribble and fortune cookies. I've been, that's been on my mind. There's got to be a reason. <laughs> but I can't, I can't come up with what, what the fortune cookies are. <laughs> oh, and we, when we first meet him, he's always ta- also talking about how he has to keep the room dark because of his eyes. So, oh, sparkly, um, so what's happening with his eyes? You know, when you said they were sparkling, I thought they were just reflections of the stars. Do you think it was actually something that was in his eyes? That's what I thought. That makes me think of the original series episodes where no man has gone before. Remember when Gary Mitchell and Dr. Elizabeth Daner, I think her name was, they both got affected by crossing the barrier between universes and their eyes got all silvery? Maybe that's what happened to Captain Lorca. To my theory about the time travel. Yeah. He's crossing universes and... So we're going to have to watch for, like, ESP stuff. Yeah, the sparkling almost looked like the, uh, what do you call them? They're testing. Oh, like the spores. Oh, no. But I did think it was his eyes. I didn't think it was the reflection. Okay, interesting. But we didn't see that when he showed up um, in the science lab to put together the away team. And as a matter of fact, that seemed pretty bright in there. I was surprised that he wasn't like showing any signs of discomfort. Right. Another mystery that we're going to have to track down with this. So at the end of the show, he essentially, I don't want to say manipulates Michael Burnham into joining his crew, but definitely strategically argues with her. No, I don't think he manipulated her. I think she knows. Well, I think he tried, but I think she knows exactly what he... Well, she does know. She knows. She knew that this was all staged. And I have to say, I came away not sure, and I'm sure this was the intent, as to whether I liked Captain Lorca or not. How about you? Yeah. And and again, I'm going to go back to The Walking Dead, to the charge of everything, who's in a room with a bunch of crazy stuff, (laughs) who turns out to be not the good guy. And we do see him at the very end in a room full of kind of, you know, it's not his ready room, which is very austere and only has a couple of things in it. It's another room, looks like another lab, where there are, I saw a uh, Cardassian vole was on the table, and it looked like a, um, there was a skeleton in a corner that looked like a Gorn. It was, and and that's what I thought, and I I looked it up because I wasn't sure, but Uh, it was a Gorn. and And then we saw a very dark 
force field protected space that we realize has the creature that was chasing the crew of the other ship and they transferred it to his laboratory so either this guy is some kind of genius or he's frankenstein yeah that's what i'm thinking and you know we haven't i mean we don't know if the original series were the first to ever come across a gorn um, well, actually, there was a Gorn in an episode of the Enterprise. It was it was the it was the Dark Universe episode, you know, through the Mirror Darkly episode. Okay. There was a Gorn in that one. I haven't made it that far yet in Enterprise, then. But um, and, and the triples too. Well, that's not reproducing. Lots of stuff to be thinking about. Lots of stuff to see where those dots connect. That was it. We're left with Michael Burnham staying on board Discovery as a sort of de facto science advisor. Understanding that there's a problem now. And understanding there's a problem. We are left with Saru, knowing that he may be facing two very powerful personalities that could endanger the ship. Oh, I don't think he knows yet. Joe, he watched the prison ship fly away. He didn't know she wasn't on it. I think he did, because when he but watched still the- his, his uh, thing, whatever they are, came out sensing he knew she wasn't on the ship yet sensing trouble but he doesn't know what the trouble is and we also know that the captain Lorca has you know captured this dangerous creature that was able to kill klingons and we don't know what his purpose is for that or with every, anything else in that room so we were left kind of with that mystery did did you like the episode i did like it better than the first two yes yes i liked it too i thought it was a great show but it still isn't star trek it's closer it's closer, you know, um, well, like we said, the first two, other than a few fights with the Klingons, it was mostly characters, character, 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 which is great, but this, you know, there was an away mission, there was, you know, it was closer to Star Trek. Yeah, okay. So I guess that really begs the question, what is Star Trek? Because I think that's going to be a, a, a matter of personal interpretation, Oh, sure, yeah. Because I'm looking for a lot more collaborative activity amongst the crew. Mm -hmm. And you're like, you're... I haven't met a lot of them. You're grateful to have an away mission and some, you know, adventure that helps them better understand the universe and and seeing more exploring, if I'm correct in interpreting. Seeing more exploring, but also working together, because we don't see them all together, as you do in most of the other series. Right. Not yet, anyway. And we haven't met a lot of the crew. What did you think of what Captain Lorca said that was the title of the episode, Context is for Kings? Hammered home that he's off the rails. He's just going to be one of those people that are off the rails. This isn't just about beating the Klingons. This is glory, is what, is what I'm thinking. I wasn't sure I understood what the, the phrase meant. And the only thing I came away with what he was saying was that at the end justifies the means. Because he did say our fleet is just letting him do whatever he needs to do. But I still think there's a, bunch, a lot of ego. I think you're right. And it's ego that is bolstered by necessity. So I think um, I'm still excited about the series. I'm still looking forward to seeing the next one. Um, like I said, I, I enjoyed the episode very much. thought it was a very well done story. I think it was a lot of fun. Fine. Far better than the first. It pulled together pretty quickly. Yeah, it did. The last time we talked, we were also going to go back and look for things in those first two episodes. Now, um, you had mentioned about you what you thought. 
thought were Taman Balana's baby. Yeah, there was just this one phrase at the very, very beginning that I interpreted when they were talking about, you know, their destiny and predictions. And it's right at the beginning of the episode. And when I saw it again, I realized, you know, that could be interpreted in a bunch of ways. And so my first thought was, you know, maybe these guys were going to end up in the Delta Quadrant. But now I'm not so sure. Oh, because um, I thought they were talking about Kalis. They were talking about Kalis, too. But they were also, it, it, was, it was very, very oh. beginning, almost the first di- lines of dialogue. And I was thinking, hmm, I wonder, because they were so different looking. I was thinking maybe these guys are the ones that disappear. So I'm not sure that that theory holds up. I did see the two hands, and yes, I do believe it looks like Michelangelo's. Opening sequence there, the two gloved hands. Um, It's very cool. It's a very nice um, callback to what it is that Star Trek is looking to do, learning and exploration and gathering information, and I like that a lot. I have to say, I was not able to confirm that the wine bottle was from the Picard Vineyard or that the book titles in... Um, Captain Giorgio's ready room were actually Star Trek titles. So somebody must have paused their playback on their computer and really zoomed in to see that. Because I couldn't see it on my television. I couldn't see it either, no. Yeah. So is there anything that you didn't like about the episode? Not really, no. Um, The only things I didn't like, which I already said, was me personally, I can't separate the characters yet. Right. From other characters. But without them saying mutineer. So you'd like them to to stop saying that? It was just, I don't think I've ever heard anybody use that word before, and I've never heard it so many times in an hour episode, so enough. Um, I liked it. I can't think of anything I really didn't like. Well, I'll tell you there's one thing I don't like, and it just dawned on me as I was watching it. It's along the lines of the lens flare piece, and I tried to take that as, you know, some kind of means of making this seem realistic, that, you know, there would be reflections and flares of light against windows from various angles. But the thing that's starting to bug me is that when you look at it, the camera is at an angle. The characters look like they're standing on a sloped floor. And honestly, it reminds me of when we would visit the villains' lairs in the old Batman TV show. Do you remember that? Whenever we'd go to wherever the villain was, the camera would be at an angle and the lair would be at an angle. We'd be looking at it, you know, rotated at 45 degrees. You're right, yeah. I'm going to have to pay more attention now. <laughs> Other than that, I thought the uh, the episode was really good. I was a little... I do remember thinking, you know, as she was firing shots at the creature and running through the ship to save everybody else, that it, it's still looking a lot like, the, you know, the, the Michael Burnham show. But it wasn't outside of the realm of what seemed possible and probable in the universe and how her character was motivated. It seems like, okay, you know what, this is something she would do because it was logical and because she hasn't been given a chance to do anything else. So, other than that, I thought it was really good and I'm looking forward to the next one. So am I. Like I said, I liked it a lot more than the first two. It, it kept my attention. It didn't. I watched it all the way through. The, I didn't have to stop and come back to it. So, yeah. What are the questions you hope are answered in the next episode? So why is he keeping creatures in his strange Frankenstein lab? I'd like to hear more about her childhood. I, I, I was glad they mentioned a little bit about her and her and their son, that uh, Amanda read, the, read that book to her and her son, she said, so I assume that's Spock. Yes, I'm, I'm, I assumed that too. Yeah, so I'd like to hear more about that. Eric ended up with her. They just... I think she was the only survivor. And that scene from last week when he was 
mind melding and saying, come back to me? Was that when he first found her? Because he seemed to know her. I think so. I think, I think last week suggested that these were all these, these, these people were all at this combined human Vulcan settlement. And she was attending the Vulcan school there. And when the Klingons attacked, she was the only survivor of the Vulcan school. And so he was, and I'm assuming he must have known her and her parents, maybe even felt honor-bound, because the Vulcans are a very honorable species, maybe felt honor-bound to take care of her. I I think you raise a really good question in that there's a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of backstory that we can go ahead and fill in with assumptions, but we don't actually really know. Well, then I misinterpreted all of that because when she was in the Vulcan school, I assumed that it was after he had already... I, I think it was. I think she was at a Vulcan school on that colony, and then when he brought her to foster her, she went back into the Vulcan school on Vulcan. Because if you look at the flashback scene, she appears to be in one of those teaching pods when he finds her. Okay, I, that, I missed that. Okay. I, all right. I thought something else happened to her. After he was a ward, and then that's when she was his ward, and that's when they might. Okay, that makes sense. But I could, but you know what? I think. I mean, you again. We don't know that much about this backstory, so there may be a lot oh, more I, here. You say that. I was a little confused by that. Well, this can't be him rescuing her because he already knows her. But okay, I didn't. I didn't know they were on a colony altogether. Well, and that's. And if you go back, if you want to go back, you can see it in the first episode when she's doing the flashback to her testing and the, the the computer starts asking her questions about that massacre and she's unable to answer the questions and the questions themselves suggest that it was a human Vulcan colony you know how many survivors were there she may have been the only one she knows it it's all of a sudden churning up all this emotional stuff for her that makes her unable to answer the questions but I, I I'm pretty sure that in the information about it being a combined colony was there I could be wrong <laughs> I could be misremembering Probably not. I probably just missed it because I, like I said, I had a hard time with the (laughs) first episode. All right. That makes perfect sense. So this next episode appears to be, um, it's got a very disturbing title. Have you heard the title of the next episode? It's something along the lines of, the butcher's knife doesn't care about the lamb's cry. No, I didn't see that. it's, It's very disturbing about, you know, it makes it sound like, you know, there's some difficult process that's going to take place that's going to that you know is necessary in the same way that butchering meat is necessary for people to be able to eat but the process isn't pleasant anyway that's the the title of the next episode and a couple of the um previews that they showed showed michael in the frankenstein lab so i'm really hoping that means that your question will be answered as to what's going on there hope so too yeah and i'm hoping that our awareness what we know about michael's past and her upbringing and her values will ensure that if what's going on there is unethical and immoral that she will stop it i'm really that's what i'm hoping for is that you know she doesn't become complicit it seems like some people know something's going on but and you know like uh, what's his name lieutenant Stinkness? is that how you say it i think he so. seems to know there's more going on than meets the eye but he also seems like somebody who has ethics and morals and would fight against something that was truly wrong. Because he, he keeps calling the captain a warmonger. And, um, but I'm not sure that the rest of the crew, I think they know there's doing something classified, but 
I don't, it doesn't seem to me that they all know, well, we don't know, but it seems to us that something more is going on than. So here's the thought. He brings a known convicted mutineer on board and adds her to the crew, knowing that if it's necessary, she will mutiny again, because what does she have to lose? What if he brings her on as an insurance policy? Obviously, he's doing something that wouldn't be condoned. Even though Starfleet gave him to use any means necessary. That's what I think. I think he's looking to do things that will not be condoned. And she's the scapegoat. The scapegoat or or his salvation? The scapegoat. Okay, you think he's going to put the blame at her feet? It doesn't seem like he wants somebody. You, you think she, he wants her there to stop him if it... Yeah, I'm wondering if that's why she's there. Because, again, if she needed to disobey orders and mutiny, what would happen to her? Another life sentence? It's not been rescinded. No, I said that's a, that's a, another way to, yeah. Because that would be more in line with the morals of a Starfleet captain, someone who actually wanted to uphold the principles of the Federation and found himself in a place where those principles were slipping out of his grasp because of the war... Bringing her on is almost like, you know, a release valve on a nuclear reactor. Yeah, but we don't know that he has those principles yet. We can only hope and guess. I could see exactly what you're saying, and that makes perfect sense, too. I, I, I guess it depends on him whether he does have those principles or if he's just looking for glory. Yeah. Which, which in a way, I think he is. Yeah, he does seem, you know, when you were talking about how Starfleet told him to use any means necessary, it made me think of that amazing Deep Space Nine episode uh, in the pale moonlight where, you know, Cisco has to violate all kinds of his ethical principles in a war scenario. Yep. But he did not and was never looking for glory. And that's a big difference. I think that's an important difference that you point out. Yeah, he wasn't looking for glory. And by the end, he realized, even though he regretted what he did or had to do, he knows he did it for the greater good. That's a great episode. It's one of my favorites. Thank you for joining us on Moms Going Boldly. We hope you enjoyed our discussion of Context is for Kings. Join us next time for the fourth episode of the series, The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find me at autismmom.com. That's autism-mom.com. You can find me at takingstep.com. And we hope that you will join us for the next episode of Moms Going Boldly. Music used on Moms Going Boldly is entitled Without Limits by Ross Bugden Music. It is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. And please follow Ross Bugden on Twitter at Ross Bugden. <laughs>